From Bodimo, this is Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime. The Murder of the Chairman In October 1993, a murder occurs in Gintofte, a municipality north of Copenhagen. The crime creates headlines in Denmark because the murder was committed with an unusual weapon. Additionally, the victim is the Danish chairman of an international company, and the crime scene is located in an exclusive residential area in Copenhagen. For the police, the circumstances of this crime are far from typical. Finn Helmerson and Jorgen Petersen have known each other since they were six years old. Though their careers move in different directions, they stay in touch and remain friends. Jorgen Petersen gets an education in commerce and works for several marketing and sales companies, but isn't hugely successful. He's full of ideas, but there's never enough money to put them into action. He eventually meets a dentist, and the two of them move to Germany in 1986. They have two children and seem to be doing well, but the truth is Jorgen has no money and still can't make his projects or dreams come true. Finn is doing better. He finds employment at a perfume-selling company and quickly becomes an expert in his field. He climbs the career ladder and very soon reaches the top, becoming the chairman of the Danish division of Elizabeth Arden, a global cosmetic company. As chairman, he makes good money and buys a villa in the posh Hellerup district near the Sound Strait, north of Copenhagen. If he wanted to, he could make an international career for himself at the company. In 1993, both men are over 40, and their friendship is put to the test. It ends tragically for one of them. It's the cold early hours of Saturday, the 2nd of October, 1993. A young man named Bo has been into the city with his girlfriend. Bo walks her home and then goes to his own home in Hellerup. Bo is neighbors with Finn, the chairman of the cosmetic industry giant. Instead of going to bed, Bo turns on the TV to watch a film when he hears noises coming from his neighbor's property. It sounds as if someone has slammed a car door. He can also hear raised male voices and possibly a female voice too. Bo quickly forgets about the commotion, finishes watching the film, and goes to sleep. No more noises come from the neighbor's property. Finn's other neighbor returns home early the next morning after spending the night in the city with friends. As he opens the door to his house, he hears unsettling noises, moans and shouts, as if someone is fighting. He wonders if he should climb over the fence and check on Finn, who lives between him and Bo. But something stops him, and in the end, he goes to bed and falls asleep. The woman who lives across the street usually gets up very early, and this Saturday morning is no different. As usual, she looks out of the window on the upper floor of her house, which overlooks Finn's driveway and garden. She's alarmed at the sight of two people fighting. It looks like one of them is lying on the ground, while the other is beating them. The woman is short-sighted, so she goes to another room to get her glasses and better see what's happening. When she looks out of the window again, there's no sign of the fight, and the street is quiet. At roughly the same time, a newspaper delivery boy whose route passes nearby notices a dark estate car stop 
just around the corner. Another newspaper boy, who usually delivers Finn his morning papers, spots something that looks like blood on the grass and gravel in the driveway. But nothing else catches his attention, so he rides off. Finn's villa is enormous. He bought it for himself and his daughter, but she's since moved out and currently attends a private school in Switzerland. Finn rents the basement room to a young woman. On the night of the 2nd of October, she's not home as she left the house on Friday evening and doesn't return until Saturday, around 2.25pm, with a friend. They park their car in the driveway behind Finn's giant Chrysler. The young woman is surprised to see an old, dead Christmas tree in front of the carport. She then notices something lying under the tree. She gets closer and starts screaming. It's a body. The man is lying on his stomach, his body distorted. It's Finn, the man she rents a room from. After only a few minutes, at 2.30pm, she calls the police. Weekends are relatively quiet at the Gintofte police station, but this Saturday will end up being anything but quiet. Any officers that are relaxing at home and enjoying their free time are called to the station. That afternoon, the lead criminal officer, Jul Laudsen, returned from his jog to find an urgent message. He needs to go to the station at once. As the forensic examination is being conducted at the crime scene, Finn Helmerson's body can't immediately be removed from the driveway. A forensic pathologist is summoned for the preliminary examination of the body. Meanwhile, photojournalists arrive after learning of the crime from the police radio. They have enough time to take photos of Finn's body before it's taken away from the crime scene. The next day, one of those photos appears on the front page of two of the biggest Danish tabloids. After a preliminary examination, the forensic pathologist concludes that the victim was most likely killed with a knife, as there are multiple stab wounds in his chest. Numerous wounds on his hands and forearms suggest that Finn had tried to defend himself. The victim was wearing his everyday clothes and a coat, and the doctor said that he had been dead for several hours. Multiple elements of the crime stand out as unusual to the police. The front door is locked, but there is no key on Finn's body. Even more bizarre is that he isn't wearing shoes. A dead Christmas tree lies on the body, with a large bag of coal on top of the tree. The culprit had most likely used the bag to weigh the tree down so the wind would not move it. Nothing outside the villa looks out of the ordinary, and there are no signs of burglary or theft. The blood traces in front of the carport and on the front lawn indicate that the victim and the perpetrator must have fought each other. Criminal police officers arrive at the scene, and experts from the Danish Central Bureau of Investigation meticulously search the place for fingerprints. At the same time, police dogs check the nearby gardens, looking for the murder weapon and any other possible evidence. The neighbours are questioned, and their testimonies help the police establish that the victim died around 6.05am. After the crime scene is secured, the body is transported to a forensic institute in Copenhagen for an autopsy. It's determined that Finn was stabbed in the back three times with a knife, with one larger stab wound in his chest. There's also a bulge on the victim's chest that looks like a protruding broken rib. 
but further examination reveals that it's a 22-centimeter-long shaft ending in a metal arrowhead. The arrow may have been shot or stuck into the victim from behind. However, the forensic technicians can't estimate the entire length of the shaft as it's broken and the other end is missing. The broken arrow may have been shot from a bow, but it could also be part of a crossbow bolt. Yul Laudsen, who's conducting the investigation, must contend with a peculiar and mysterious murder. It's not just because of the arrow that's stuck in the victim's back, but because there are no promising leads. The witnesses' statements provide no additional clues, and the police are unable to determine a motive. All that's known is that Finn Helmerson was killed by an arrow shot from a bow or a crossbow. The victim is not wearing shoes, nothing was stolen from his villa, and the keys to Finn's car and residence are missing. The first 24 hours after a murder are extremely important to the investigation, so the police immediately start examining Finn's life. They question many people, Finn's relatives, his friends and business partners, even his co-workers and superiors from Elizabeth Arden, and quickly discover that Finn's old friend, Jorgen, currently lives in Germany. Jorgen is questioned via phone on Sunday evening, one day after the murder. He says that he and his wife were visiting his parents-in-law in Denmark during the weekend. Jorgen also claims he talked with Finn. And first, the police don't notice anything suspicious about his testimony. That Monday, the Gintofter police receive backup. Copenhagen's Homicide Police Division has more experience investigating murders due to the higher murder rate in the capital, so they sent two skilled officers to Gintofter. During the next few days, the Gintofter police also received backup from nearby police stations. In 1993, they don't yet have their own computers, so they borrow a few from the state police. The computers have special software designed to support investigations, which enables them to check names, times, and other data much faster than using physical documents. In the days following the murder, the investigators sit crammed like sardines in the office at the quiet police station in Gintofter, combing through vast amounts of data to solve this perplexing crime. There are no leads and a lot of data. Everything must be analysed, as even the smallest detail or clue might be important. It's crucial to determine Finn's whereabouts when the crime was committed. Before his death, Finn went on a business trip to the Scandinavian peninsula. He told his friend that he needed to return to Denmark by the 30th of September at the latest because he was meeting a friend who owed him money. Naturally, the police would like to speak with that friend. After questioning a close friend of Finn's, the police suspect that the meeting must have taken place. Finn visited his friend, a hairdresser in Copenhagen, at her hair salon. He asked her if she would receive an envelope of money for him on Friday the 1st of October, the day before he was murdered. Finn explained that the envelope would be given to her by a man who owes him money. However, the man with the envelope never showed up. According to the plan, the hairdresser was supposed to bring the money to a party that evening that both she and Finn would attend. During the party, Finn learns that the envelope was never delivered. He calmly accepts the news and is in good spirits for the rest of the evening. Finn leaves 15 minutes after midnight 
and drives his large Chrysler home. The party guests described the clothes Finn wore that evening as a black suit, but when he was murdered, he was wearing jeans, a polo shirt, and a sports jacket, meaning he had gone home and changed before being attacked shortly after 6am. There's no alarm clock in Finn's bedroom, so the police think that someone must have called him and woken him. The matter must have been important enough for Finn to get up, get dressed, and meet that person. It's also possible that in the six hours after the party and before his death, he had not been in bed at all. The intensive questioning pays off, and the police are one step away from answering a crucial question. Although the officers had already talked to Finn's childhood friend on the phone for an hour, Inspector Yul Larsson wants to question Jorgen once more, this time in person. At first, the police don't treat Jorgen like a suspect. They only want to talk to him again because he knew Finn better than other people and might be able to tell them more. They call Jorgen in Germany again and ask him to come to Gentofte. Jorgen agrees to travel to Denmark on Thursday the 7th of October. The police already know that from Thursday the 30th of September until the following Sunday, Jorgen Peterson was visiting his in-laws in Denmark with his wife and two children. At that point, the family wanted to return to Germany. On Friday evening, the 1st of October, his in-laws threw a family birthday party at their villa. Just before the end of the party, around midnight, Jorgen drove a few guests back to Copenhagen before coming back. His in-laws tell the police that Jorgen didn't leave the house during the night or early hours of the morning. Jorgen drives a dark red Opel Omega estate car with German number plates. This car model is very similar to the vehicle spotted by a newspaper boy near Finn's villa, but it seems improbable that Jorgen is the killer. He'd have had to leave his sleeping family, drive to Finn's house, kill him, and then return to his wife, children, and in-laws. Jorgen's family tells the police that he brought bread rolls in the morning and acted normally while having breakfast with his family. At the time, Jorgen's family's claim that he didn't leave his in-law's house while the murder was being committed seems like a solid alibi. As Finn's murder is so unusual and the police are grasping at straws, they put out a public call for help, which turns up a number of new leads. Some of them look interesting at first glance, but later turn out to be useless. One of the leads comes from Copenhagen's gay community. As Finn's photos are published in the newspapers daily, the police receive many anonymous phone calls regarding him. A few individuals claim that Finn had been seen among the gay community in Copenhagen. The police contact a few male escorts and call them into the station for questioning. They are shown photos of Finn, but almost unanimously claim that they've never met Finn, only someone who looks like him. Further investigation confirms that Finn wasn't gay, but had a look-alike. The attempts to find that man fail. Next, the police investigate whether Finn may have had a gambling debt. He was known to visit casinos often. In the past, he'd even won a million kroner, about $135,000 from a slot machine. To examine that lead in more detail, the Gintofte police are joined by experts from the Public Order Office, who deal with legal and illegal gambling games in Copenhagen. Unfortunately, that trail leads nowhere, as they find no information indicating that Finn had ever owed anyone money due to his gambling. And so, the investigation returns to Finn's debtor, 
The police find a number of useful documents in Finn's villa. One of the drawers is full of receipts from German post offices, providing proof that large amounts of money had been transferred to Finn. A few of them are from a post office in Dusseldorf. It's worth noting that Finn's childhood friend, Jorgen, lives in that area. When Jorgen travels from Germany to Denmark to be questioned on Thursday, five days after the murder, he says that he'd met Finn at his house a week prior. He also confirms that he owed his friend a large sum, which was why he'd been sending money from Germany to Denmark. He finally explains the circumstances of the financial problems that led to his debt to his friend. In 1987, Jorgen, like many other Danes, invests in a large mining project in Chile. At the time, he thought the project was an excellent investment and talked his old friend Finn into investing 300,000 kroner, or $40,000. The equivalent today would be twice that much. Unfortunately, the risky project turned out to be a fiasco and failed. Jorgen begins paying off Finn's debt, claiming that it's a debt of honor to his friend. This information is very important for the police, as it becomes clear that the men's friendship was strained because of money. A lot of money. On top of that, Jorgen was in Denmark at the time of the murder and owns a vehicle similar to the dark estate car seen by one of the newsboys. Despite all this, the police still don't consider Jorgen their prime suspect. The police visit his in-laws again, but increase the depth and detail of their questioning. During these conversations, the investigators learn more about what occurred in the in-laws' villa at the time of the murder. A new hypothesis is formed. Perhaps their son-in-law didn't spend the whole night in bed. Early in the morning of the day in question, between 6 and 6.30 a.m., a family member supposedly saw Jorgen in his underwear, sitting in his car parked in the driveway. It's worth noting that Jorgen's in-laws only live about three to four kilometers, about 1.9 to two and a half miles, from Finn's house. At breakfast, Jorgen had explained that he went outside to move his car to the driveway because there hadn't been any space after returning from driving the party guests home. His testimony causes the police to start suspecting that Jorgen might have committed the crime. So they follow that lead and continue investigating him. The Forensic Technology Division goes even further while examining the unusual murder weapon. The arrowhead is a peculiarity. The results of the analysis suggest the arrow was shot from a crossbow, but the possibility of it being shot from an ordinary bow can't be eliminated. The lower part of the arrowhead has a thread allowing it to be screwed onto the shaft, but the shaft is broken. In Denmark, crossbows are illegal and hard to obtain, unlike in Germany, where they can be purchased legally. Crossbow shooting is considered a sport in Germany, as well as a popular recreational activity, so bringing the weapon across Denmark's southern border would be relatively easy. This additional information means that Finn's friend Jorgen remains one of the suspects. However, the forensic technicians are uncertain whether the arrow was shot from a crossbow or a bow nor can they establish the Arrowhead's country of origin. The police publish a photo of Finn's car, a large Chrysler, Le Baron. Only 35 such cars are registered in Denmark. The remaining 34 owners of those cars are questioned, as two leads suggest that on the night of the murder, 
a similar car drove through Copenhagen. One witness claims they saw such a car park on Strand Boulevarden in Copenhagen and then drive away. Interestingly, that's only 200 meters from the street where the party that evening took place, the same party Finn's hairdresser friend attended. A taxi driver recalls that he may have seen a Chrysler in Copenhagen city center that night. 11 days after the murder, a television program about true criminal cases on Danish TV features a reconstruction of witness testimonies and Finn's route starting the evening before he was killed. The police give the television station some photos of Finn's car, which had been searched for fingerprints and other evidence. Elizabeth Arden is conducting an in-depth investigation to determine whether Finn could have made any enemies due to his work. It seems that Finn was working on preventing parallel import, which is the introduction of cheaper product copies to the market that could cause Elizabeth Arden damage and considerable losses. It was clear that Finn did have rivals in the industry, but nothing suggests the rivalry was so extreme it could lead to murder. His lifestyle also doesn't point towards any obvious motives, at least not until new information arrives from abroad. The investigation continues to follow many leads, but as more and more leads point to Jorgen, the police form a special unit to investigate him specifically. When Jorgen's Danish business partners and fellow Chilean mining project investors are questioned, they give the police several documents related to the failed enterprise. Among other items, the investigators receive a letter addressed to Jorgen's business partners, in which he asks them for help in repaying the enormous debt owed to Finn. In this letter, Jorgen states that he knows he's the one in debt and responsible for repaying it, but writes that he's up against a wall. Still, his business partners refuse to help him with the debt. The next time Jorgen is questioned, he initially seems calm and relaxed, but the new information weighs on him. At this stage, one thing is certain. Jorgen Peterson is now the prime suspect in this case. It soon turns out that Finn also had a good reason to demand the money back from his childhood friend. Finn's financial situation was stable, but he was soon going to begin a new position within the company as director for the entire Scandinavian region. An analysis of his documents shows that moving to another place would have involved significant additional costs, which in turn could have caused Finn financial problems. Due to this, he may have pressured Jorgen for the money. The investigators begin cooperating with German and Swiss police. Jorgen has an apartment in Germany and a smaller one in Switzerland, so German and Swiss law enforcement bodies are asked for permission to search the residences. The operation is time-consuming because the police must first acquire a warrant from the court in Gintofte, which must be approved by the Danish Ministry of Justice, and only then can it be sent to the law enforcement bodies in Switzerland and Germany. They, in turn, must permit the officers to search the apartments. Those cross-border formalities take about a week. Meanwhile, the Gintofte police wish to question Jorgen a third time to, among other things, learn more about the money transfers sent through the German post office to Denmark. They also want to learn what he was doing early in the morning on the 2nd of October and why he moved his car while only wearing his underwear. Jorgen often calls the Danish police unit to ask about the investigation's progress. 
The police are careful not to let Jorgen know that he's considered to be the prime suspect. They explain that they want to talk to him again because he's one of the last people who saw Finn alive. Jorgen agrees to another round of questioning and is willing to do so as fast as possible to close this chapter once and for all, stating that the situation is causing his family significant strain. Despite the fact that Jorgen is the prime suspect, the investigators still don't have conclusive evidence. They hope to find that in Germany during their search. While abroad, they also want to check if Jorgen purchased a crossbow from a weapon shop in Dusseldorf or the surrounding area, but they know obtaining incriminating evidence will be difficult. Jorgen tells the lead investigator that he'll be in Denmark on the 2nd of December. Thanks to this information, the police know exactly when they'll be able to search Jorgen's German apartment. The German police acquire all formally necessary documents that guarantee that Danish officers will be able to participate in the search. On the 2nd of December, at 10.30am, Jorgen's plane lands at Copenhagen Airport. As he makes his way from the airport to the Gintofter police station, he is under observation by a police unit. Simultaneously, two Danish investigation teams are preparing for the operation in Germany. One team searches Jorgen's apartment and questions his wife, while another checks the nearby shops that sell crossbows. The apartment in Switzerland had been previously searched, but no evidence was found. When Jorgen enters the police station, the Danish officers in Germany are notified, so they can signal that the case's crucial operation should begin. Jorgen's wife in Germany is shocked to discover that their entire residence will be searched. The police find the clothes Jorgen wore during his family visit to Denmark and also sees a typewriter and some documents related to the Chilean project. Then, the phone rings. It's a call from the officers searching the nearby weapon shops. After checking a few locations to no avail, they go to the main police station for a lunch break. Upon arrival, they receive a call from someone who works at one of the shops they visited earlier. During their visit, the woman couldn't remember anything significant about the crossbows the shop sold, but she recalled something after they left. Two months prior, a man passing himself off as Dutch bought a crossbow from her. She went to the basement to check the customer data and found an information card and a bill confirming the purchase. Jorgen's name and address were on the card. The woman says that the Dutchman had no ID, so she asked him to write down his name in the shop's books. It's confirmed. Jorgen bought a crossbow on Thursday the 29th of September, two days before the murder and his visit to his in-laws in Denmark. The Danish officers are eager to call Gintofter, where Jorgen is being questioned, but they have to be very cautious. To confirm it with absolute certainty, they go to Jorgen's residence to compare the signatures on the crossbow shop purchase confirmation with other documents. The signatures are a match. Back at the Gintofter police station, Jorgen is enduring a lengthy round of questioning, but stubbornly claims he knows nothing about the murder. The police press him further about what he was doing the night of the murder and why he was in his car the following morning. He's also informed that his behavior is considered suspicious and that the police think it was him who killed Finn. Jorgen vehemently denies this. At this point, 
the police in Denmark obtain new information from the officers in Germany and quickly notify Jorgen that they know he purchased a crossbow two days before the murder. This information promptly changes the mood in the interrogation room. Jorgen requests a short one-on-one conversation with his lawyer, after which he pleads guilty to the murder. Surprisingly, he also congratulates the police on their excellent work on the investigation. The same evening, Jorgen is brought before a judge who issues a warrant for his arrest. He repeats his testimony and explains how financial issues between friends led to a crime. At some point, Jorgen suggested that Finn invest $40,000 into the Chilean project as a creditor. In return, he would get a share of the profits. Jorgen's wife was supposed to be a guarantor on the loan. Finn follows his old friend's advice and lends him the money, but the project fails. Jorgen is disappointed and can't bring himself to tell his wife the truth about the failed investment, which is why he begins paying off the loan to Finn in installments, using money from the household budget. At first, he sends about 5,000 kroner per month to Denmark. Today, that's a little more than $1,300. For most households, that would be a very large sum. Allegedly, Finn continues demanding larger and larger installments until this final time, when he wants Jorgen to repay him 100,000 kroner, about $13,500. The two talk shortly before Jorgen visits his in-laws in Denmark. Finn's behavior towards Jorgen is supposedly very aggressive. They agree to meet in Copenhagen on Thursday, and Finn is to receive the usual amount of money, 5,000 kroner. But Finn asks for a larger sum, and because Jorgen feels backed into a corner, he promises to get the rest of the money in the next few days. On Saturday morning, while his family is still asleep, Jorgen calls Finn from his in-law's house, claiming that he has the money and they can meet. But his real plan is different. He takes the crossbow he smuggled into Denmark and packs it into his car, along with a knife he bought in Germany. He quickly drives to the street called Bernstoffsweg, where he parks his car before walking a short distance to another street, Hürdeweg, where Finn lives at number eight. As he stands near the carport, he puts the crossbow together. Through the window, he can see his friend walking down the stairs. Finn goes outside. Jorgen cannot or does not want to explain what happens next. The crossbow shot isn't fatal, so Jorgen starts fighting Finn fiercely and has to stab him with a knife many times to kill him. The arrow shaft lodged in Finn's body breaks during the fight. Jorgen doesn't recall dragging Finn to the carport and putting a dead Christmas tree on top of him. Afraid that he may have left his fingerprints on Finn's shoes, Jorgen puts them into a gym bag with the crossbow, the dagger, and Finn's keys, which fell out of his pocket and onto the driveway during the fight. Jorgen takes the bag from the scene with him. He drives to his in-law's residence and removes his blood-stained clothing while still outside near his car. He leaves the clothes, gym bag, and keys in the car until six days later when he goes to Denmark for questioning on the 8th of October. He throws most of the evidence overboard from the ferry, but only gets rid of Finn's shoes in Germany, throwing them into the bushes near a gas station. Jorgen confesses that he was planning to kill Finn, 
but after a while, he changes his testimony and claims that he only wanted to scare him. He also says that the crossbow shot was an accident and that he blacked out when stabbing Finn with the knife. Jorgen then claims that Finn threatened to rape his wife and children if he did not start paying him higher installments. During the court hearing in February 1995, Jorgen suggests that to get his money back, Finn was using the same methods the Mafia would. The prosecutor is outraged by the statement. Tell us the truth. You're tarnishing the good name of a deceased man who's unable to defend himself. On the 10th of February, 1995, Jorgen Peterson is sentenced to 16 years in prison, which is then shortened to 14 years by the Supreme Court. Finn's family and friends erupt into applause after the sentence is delivered. The murder of Finn Helmerson may never have been solved if Jorgen Peterson had had his German weapon license when buying the murder weapon. Then, the shop worker may not have recalled him when the police officers visited her two months later. There's only one conclusion. People should think about whether money and friendship can really go hand in hand. From Podimo, this is Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime. Listen to a new episode every week, wherever you get your podcasts. For early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.